Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program. I'm Jeff, and with me today is our regular co-host, Brian. Brian, how are you doing today? Hey, doing well, Jeff. Really looking forward to looking at these questions. You know, this is one of my favorite types of podcasts that we do because it just offers a variety. As Brian is alluding to, periodically we will do a sampling of questions that have been submitted to the Bible Questions website. And as a side comment, I might mention that, you know, right there on the front page at BibleQuestions.org is an Ask a Question button, a menu item that allows anyone, anywhere, anytime around the planet to submit a question to us that we'll receive assigned to one of our, our staff members and give you a you know, personalized response, typically within a couple of days. Of course, we would encourage our listeners, you know, there's a lot of material already on the website, uh, in our topical index, uh, in our podcast uh, index, in our uh, under our lessons menu items. So there's a lot of existing material. Chances are you'll probably find your question uh, already answered. But uh, we do respond personally to uh, submitted questions. And like I said, once in a while, we like to uh, do a sampling and, and pass those to uh, our listeners in hopes that, you know, they may have, you know, similar questions or it might uh, spark their interest to come to the uh, website to get uh, additional uh, information. So, Brian, any other introductory comments before uh, I'll throw the first question at you? I just one, and that is, yeah, you'd mentioned if anybody would like to submit a question, they absolutely are welcome to do so. The good news is that we also have hundreds and hundreds of questions that people have asked over the years that you can find on the website by going to that alphabetical index we often talk about. So if you you know have a question about Jesus, there's several sections of questions on Jesus that have been submitted and answered already. Or there's also a really nice search feature where if you can just think of a couple of key words, maybe you want some information on baptism or the Holy Spirit or whatever, you could just type in those words and it's going to bring up everything on the website. You know, the entire website's been indexed. So it'll bring up, as Jeff mentioned, whether it's previous questions or articles or study material on that subject. So uh, please utilize our website as a resource. I think you'll find it's very robust. It's been going for what, Jeff, 20 plus years now, right? So it's, it's a lot exactly. of Hey, Brian. So the first question comes in from Curtis. He says, my wife and I have a pen pal relationship with an inmate whom we have known for about 30 years. He received Christ while in prison and has faithfully served in the prison ministry since his conversion. Because of his limited access to the internet, he's requested that I ask a couple of questions about some Bible passages. So Brian looks like this is going to be a two-parter. First part, the New King James Version has John 13.3 as... No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. His question is, since Jesus is the incarnate Christ, was here in the flesh, how was he in heaven at the same time, according to John 13, 3? Yes, good question, and I could certainly see how that would be confusing to some it looks like, first off, that Curtis transposed the passage that he referenced because the quote that he gives from John 13, 3 is actually from John 3, 13. But anyhow, if you were to turn over to John chapter 3, you'll see here that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about baptism. And he says, if you go back up to verse 3, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, if you continue reading, you'll see that Nicodemus is still confused. And he says in verse 9, How can these things be? Well, Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Which then leads us to the statement that Curtis is asking about in verse 13. And that is, and this is according to the New King James, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. 
So once again, can understand how some might think that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm simultaneously on earth and in heaven. So, you know, when we think about verses that can be confusing, a couple things that I would always recommend we do. One is look at different translations. Because, for instance, when you look at the New King James and the King James, those were based on one set of manuscripts that were used to translate. And then when you look at like the New American Standard, ESV, and so forth, those are based on another set of manuscripts. And so sometimes they can read differently, and sometimes it has to do with the scholarly work of the translators and what they felt would best convey what the original Greek stated. So in this particular case, if you were to look at the New American Standard, John 3.13 says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, when you look at that rendering, it seems to be more logical as to the point Jesus was making, that he is the only man who can speak of heavenly things because he was the only man that ever descended from heaven and then returned back to heaven. Now, when we think about this book of John, it's important for us to remember that it was written after Jesus had already ascended back to heaven. So when the New King James says, the Son of Man who is in heaven, well, that makes sense because by the time that book was written, Jesus was, in fact, back in heaven. So even if you were just to look at the New King James Version, you can reconcile this statement with Jesus not trying to say, hey, I'm on earth and in heaven at the same time. But once again, he'd already ascended back to heaven. In fact, John makes a similar, what we might call present tense statement about Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 18, where he says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So, you know, once again, Jesus in the bosom of the Father, because he was deity when he came to this earth, well, he maintained that deity. He maintained this special relationship with God. But no doubt, he was the only man that came from heaven and then went back to heaven. So therefore, he was qualified to speak of heavenly things. So Jeff, before you get to the second question, any thoughts about that you want to add? Oh, and I've also seen uh, perhaps a view that Jesus is saying he is not physically in heaven at the same time he's physically on earth, which doesn't make sense because, you know, he's indwelling the, his body at the time. But perhaps in a relationship, an ongoing, as you said, close relationship, you know, with God, you know, interaction, etc. Um, I've, I've kind of heard that as well. Any other thoughts before I uh, ask part two? Yeah, there are some scholars who believe that Jesus being God in the flesh was simultaneously in heaven while he was here on earth. But, you know, you would have to have passages that would support that theory. And in fact, I would argue that it would conflict with what Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 62, where he says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? So, you know, it seems that Jesus is simply making the point that he is the only one qualified to speak of heavenly things as he is the only man to have descended from heaven and being incarnate, right, God in the flesh. He certainly was qualified to speak of what is required to enter the kingdom of God. So hopefully that makes sense. And, you know, it's just one of those examples where additional translations can help, but then also balancing it with what other passages say to make sure that there's no conflict there. Points. Okay, so part two of Chris's question is from John chapter 14, verse 9, where Jesus speaking says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So the question is, is Jesus saying that he is actually or literally God the Father? Which I know, Brian, is something that the oneness Pentecostals you know, proclaim, that Jesus on the earth is the Father. Uh, the Trinity's wrong. Basically, there, there's just Jesus. So what's, what would be your response to that? Yeah, that's right. And, and I think this is an example also of how it can just be confusing. Like we've talked quite a bit about the Godhead in previous podcasts and how sometimes it's hard to sort of wrap our mind around that Jesus was God, but yet Jesus was a distinct being and the Holy Spirit's a distinct being. And so we do know from the scriptures that, yes, Jesus was God in the flesh. And as part of the Godhead, he was the physical manifestation, we might say, of God on earth. Now, with that said, he, as I just mentioned, was still a distinct being. So if you look at John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then if you skip down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we can see here clearly the Holy Spirit through John was telling us that Jesus was God and that he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And of course, Jesus is called the Word. So when you see the the Word here, it is specifically talking about Jesus. And we know verse 14 is saying, yeah, he came to this earth, he was flesh, he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of only begotten of the Father. So there's another passage, I think, that helps to clarify this. Jeff, could I get you to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and we'll see how this also helps. Okay. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we see here in verse 6, Jesus being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So that one passage kind of helps us, I think, understand the fact that, you know, once again, Jesus was God in the flesh. He came to this earth in the form of God as a distinct being, but yet, as it says in John 1, 1, the word was with God and the word was God. So even though it's difficult to wrap our minds around, we just have to accept the fact that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are united in purpose, are united in the truth, but yet they're distinct beings that served a very specific role in the case of Jesus and the Holy Spirit as it relates to you know revealing the truth and, of course, all authority being given to Jesus on heaven and on earth. Jeff? Good points, Brian. In fact, I think there's also a general principle here we see in Bible study. Sometimes the same word can be used in slightly different ways or have different meanings. Go back to what you said earlier with John uh, 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and, and focus on the word God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Okay, so I've got word, I've got God, you know, being with God, two, two kind of separate. In the very next phrase, and the word was God. Well, no, wait a minute. How can you be with God and God at the same time? Well, a subtle difference in the meaning. You know, being with God, we would understand that to be God the Father. And the word was God in terms of being deity or, or part of the Godhead, as you mentioned. So again, a, a good point. Sometimes the same word has slightly different meanings in different contexts. So to harmonize various contexts, you need to potentially recognize uh, that uh, that difference. That's it. That's it exactly. So the next question, Jeff, for you comes from Jordan. And he says, hello, I have a question about the assurance of salvation when it comes to counting the cost. My question comes from the story of the rich young ruler. From my understanding of the rich young ruler, his issue was that he was not willing to give up everything he had to follow Jesus because his money was an obstacle. Thus, he was not able to be a follower of Jesus. He goes on to say, recently I've been thinking about this story in regards to my own faith journey. I've been wondering if Jesus asked me to give up certain things in my life, would I be able to do it? And if I fail the test, does that mean I am not sincere in my faith? I've been thinking of random and even quite absurd hypotheticals in my mind just as part of this exercise, such as if Jesus told me to never play my favorite sport again, or if Jesus told me to only wear one shirt the rest of my life, or Jesus told me to never wear shoes, etc. And it makes me wonder if I would really be able to follow through with these kinds of commands. I do understand that nobody is perfect, such as Peter, who unlike the rich young ruler was a true disciple yet denied Jesus three times. And then there's even the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21 verses 28 through 32, which pictures a person who doesn't think they'd be willing to do something and then does it anyways. He says in parentheses, I feel as though I can relate to this. He finishes up by saying, so I guess my question is, how can we know we are saved if we can never know the level of our sincerity? And secondly, should I even be putting myself through this exercise of putting myself in hypothetical situations? 
Brian, there's a lot there to unpack, isn't there? There is, yes, indeed. Yeah. I, you know, for starters, I certainly appreciate uh, Jordan's, you know, sincerity and wanting to do what's right. Uh, the second quick point I'll make is when he references counting the cost. I don't know if he had this in mind, but Luke chapter 14 has that phrase in it. And let me just kind of just real quick, uh, contextually, basically uh, starting with verse 25, great multitudes went with him. Of course, that's Jesus. And he turned and said to them, probably something that was very shocking. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross, of course, contextually, Roman implement of execution, capital punishment, does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Likewise, I'll jump down to verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Hmm, very challenging. And then he draws this parallel, verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? There's our phrase. Whether he has enough to finish it. Likewise, verse 31, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Counting the cost. And you know, Brian, this is a very serious kind of thing for, for people who are contemplating becoming a Christian. It's not as simple or it's not as easy as some people portray it to be. Quote, unquote, just accept Jesus as your personal savior. You know, say a short prayer. Life is good, faith only, you've expressed your faith, you're saved, got your ticket punched. You know, there's a much, much, much more to it. As Jesus alludes in this particular passage, you know, counting the cost in your family relationships, counting the cost in terms of potential persecution, counting the cost in being willing to give up sin, <laughs> things that you view as wonderful but that God views as sinful, etc. So counting the cost, very important. So coming to the, I think the main thrust uh, of his question, and I think there's kind of like two, two things I'll, I'll kind of distinguish. You know, first of all, he talks about knowing if we're saved. Well, there is a group of scriptures that tell us that we can have joy, we can have rejoicing, we can have confidence in becoming saved when we do what the scriptures require of us to be saved. Sometimes we call that the plan of salvation. At our website under topics, I think the very first thing under topics is plan of salvation or how to be saved right under the topics, uh, steps to salvation. Uh, it's the second entry under topics after the popular entry, steps to salvation, as again, sometimes we call uh, the plan of salvation, which very briefly you know, consists of you know, believing Jesus is the Christ, repenting of our sins, confessing Jesus as indeed the Son of God, being immersed in water in order to have the forgiveness of our sins, uh, being baptized. That water baptism is pretty much an image, if you will, of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, uh, as Romans 6 verses 1 through 7 point out, uh, especially verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 7, for who has died has been freed from sin. Also, I'm reminded of uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 39 and 40, where Philip, as an inspired preacher, has met a person going from Jerusalem back to Africa, back to Ethiopia, and has joined to them. Or Philip has joined himself to this person. They've had a conversation, an interpretation of uh, Isaiah, and Jesus basically teaches him about Jesus. We come to verse 39. So he, being the Ethiopian eunuch, commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he, being the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. So yes, we can have confidence, we can have rejoicing, you know, once we've done initially what God has, you know, required of us to become saved. So we can have that confidence. That said, there's a second group of scriptures that say that's not the end. That's merely the beginning. That we must continue to remain faithful. And when we sin, which we will, 
to repent of our sins when we fall short of what God would have us to do. And that flies directly in the face of not only faith only, but once saved, always saved. You know, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Walk is important word there, manner of life. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if, if, conditional, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Brian, if I could get you to read, uh, let's go to 1 John chapter 1. And I tell you what, why don't you read like verses 5 through 10, and then maybe skip over into the next chapter, chapter 2, and maybe read verses 3 and 4. Okay, sounds good. So starting with 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Skipping over to chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Yeah, and Brian, that is probably one of, you know, several passages, um, and I would tend to say fairly clear passages, that pretty much takes the once saved, always saved argument and destroys it. That it does matter how you live your life. You do need to continue on being faithful, your walk, your manner of life, and you will sin from time to time. And when you do, you need to confess. And when you do, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So it's an ongoing walk. Uh, I might also mention, you know, for more from our website, I, I did mention under the topics menu item, you know, the steps to salvation, as well as A for apostasy. So that's related to can we have confidence? Well, yes, initially, and yes, on an ongoing basis, if we remain faithful and repent. Now, coming around, I think, to the maybe the main point, these hypotheticals, that, that's a good question. There's, let me say something that, that may, two things that may sound kind of contradictory. First of all, you know, there may be some value in us thinking about ourselves and our walk and different future scenarios, potential scenarios that could test our faith. And there may be some value in thinking about those so that we're not surprised and caught off guard if they were to happen. For instance, if we get into a confrontation at work over our faith, what would we do? If we have a family member who starts to sin or falls away, if the government starts to endorse persecution of Christians, what would we do? First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 comes to mind, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Of course, you can couple that with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, is there value in anticipating, uh, maybe in role-playing, uh, in thinking about what your response would be? You know, there probably is some value in that. And yet, Brian, at the same time, honestly, I really don't see value in making up kind of weird, extreme hypothetical situations, especially if you're starting to obsess over what the Bible doesn't require of us. I mean, you know, the thought occurred to me, you know, would you be faithful to Christ if Christ appeared to you and said, would you give up chocolate for me? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, it's like, no, nah, wait a minute. You know, does, does Christ require us to give up, you know, chocolate? <laughs> like, oh, no, that's not in the scripture. So, you know, why obsess over a, 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 a unreasonable hypothetical? The other thing, Brian, I'll mention, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Now, the scriptures do talk about being overly anxious, worrisome, 
for instance, Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 31, talk about worrying about our life, worrying about material things. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. I really love what the New King James uh, translation has. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And then, of course, we can wrap it up with Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So, Brian, you know, my apologies, and to my, our listeners, a, a long answer to what I guess is a pretty complex question, uh, but still some uh, some key lessons we can can get out of it. Yeah, I appreciate the balance that you brought to this hypotheticals question because, you know, all of us, as you pointed out from time to time, probably think back to the first century or even beyond that, you know, and hey, could I... Like if I was like David and was relentlessly pursued by Saul to where I had to hide in caves, would I be able to handle that? Or if I was Jeremiah and was thrown into a well to die, or if I was the apostle Paul and I was stoned and left for dead, would I still have enough faith to continue on? So yeah, those can be healthy, as you mentioned, to as kind of a checkpoint for ourselves. But yeah, like I said, like I say, the balance that you brought about hypotheticals that are sort of outlandish. Jesus is never going to ask us to not wear shoes for the rest of our lives. And so, you know, you don't want to tie up your mind with things like that. So appreciate those thoughts. Okay, so you get the next one. And in contrast, this is short. Jim (laughs) writes in Romans 12, verse 2, meaning of verse. (laughs) There you go, Brian. Yeah, and uh, fair question. Certainly there are a lot of passages we wonder, what does it mean? And so to get the context, let's just go back to verse 1 of Romans 12, where Here Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So going back to verse 1, you know, as Christians, we always want to present our bodies and our lives in general as a living sacrifice and holy to be acceptable to God, as it mentions. And so to do so, we can't allow ourselves to be conformed, which if you look at that word in the Greek, it means to fashion alike, i.e. to conform to the same pattern as this world that we live in. You know, the world, if you look at it kind of at a base level, and First John talks about this as well, right, in verses 15 through 17, but, you know, the world in general seeks to satisfy their fleshly desires, Whereas the Christian puts off these works of the flesh that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. So when you become a Christian, as it says there in verse 2, we really are transformed. We are changed. We no longer follow these fleshly desires. And so when you think about this idea of being transformed, if you look at that word in the Greek, it comes from a Greek word metamorphu. And you might remember that all of us from when we were in school and we had like a biology class and we talked about metamorphosis where you have a caterpillar that changes or transforms into a butterfly and i've always liked that analogy jeff because when you think about it as sinners it's ugly right we have these fleshy desires well caterpillars at times are kind of ugly but yet when they change and they're transformed, they can become these beautiful butterflies. And I love that in a spiritual way too, because when you become a Christian and you put off these works of the flesh and you put on the fruit of the spirit, you transform yourself into something beautiful. You restore your image into which the God created us. And so over in Ephesians chapter four, Jeff, can I get you to read verses 22 through 24, where it talks about becoming a new man, if you will, when we're baptized. You put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So, when you go back to verse two, do not be conformed to this world. Okay, we talked about that, but be transformed. Talked about that by the renewing of your mind. So this renewing, 
literally once again and going back to greek try not to do too much of that but it means renovation so we renovate our minds our intellect our understanding through the gospel and so what jeff just read there in ephesians 4 talks about okay yes put off your formal conduct verse 22 be renewed right renovate your minds back to the image in which god created us and in that sense verse 24 we are a new man a new person which is what God intended when he created us, right? To be righteous and to be holy because we were created in his image, which is righteous and holy. So when we renew our minds and apply the godly principles within the Bible, we prove or test, this word means discern, examine by experience, we prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So when we do that, when we put the truth to to the test, by implementing it in our lives, and we examine the changes that it makes in our lives by experience, it really reinforces within us that what God is asking us to do compared to that fleshly-driven desires of mankind in the world is the better way, is the correct way to live our lives. And as verse 1 mentions, it's what is acceptable to God. And so, Jeff, I'll just finish up and turn it over to you by saying that you know, one of the things that became the most apparent in my life when I put on Christ when I was in high school was that it not only was the better way, but it just it transformed my life also because I found that it made my life so much more joyful because I could go to sleep at night if I'm doing what God wants me to do and I can rest peacefully knowing I'm doing what God wants to do as compared to someone that lives by fleshy desires and is sinful you don't have peace. You have turmoil in your life. You have guilt. You have all of those things that do not make life enjoyable. So anyhow, I'll turn it over to you. Well, and as you're pointing out, it's it's a very stark contrast. I mean, it's it's a stop doing what you were doing, a caterpillar analogy, that was so ugly. And, you know, lie, cheat, steal, profanity, chase women, get drunk. I mean, you know, you name it. In plus put on. So it's more than just stopping bad, well, we might say bad habits. It's adding to, it's now doing things that are more in keeping with the way God would want you to live. You know, the way you, know, the way you conduct yourself on the job, the way you conduct yourself in your marriage, the way you treat your neighbor, the way you treat your family, your kids, you know, worshiping with fellow Christians, etc. So it's 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 the putting off and the putting on. In fact, I'm reminding there's a uh, workbook uh, that we uh, used in the past: do's and don'ts, Christians, <laughs> to kind of point you know the duality there. Absolutely is yes. All right, next question for you, Jeff, comes from Peggy, and she says or asks: Is there a certain age a child has to be in order to be baptized? She goes on to say, please provide scripture references I can read to help me understand more about this. And that's a good one. You know, the real quick answer is, no, (laughs) there is not a certain age, physical age, if you will, in the scriptures that say, like under the Old Testament, you know, if you, at the eighth day, I believe, uh, males had to be circumcised, et cetera, you know, a certain, certain timeline, et cetera, a certain age. No, the Bible does not give such a uh, physical, physical, explicit uh, age for a transition. It does imply, uh, I'll call it a degree of mental maturity, which we'll get to in just just a few moments. You know, this question is kind of an interesting one because we get a lot of questions that are kind of like this with respect to the spiritual status of infants. Uh, sometimes even including questions about those uh, babies that have been aborted in the womb, young children, those who are mentally uh, handicapped from birth, who lack, we might say, sufficient mental capacity for reading and understanding the Bible, making personal application, believing Jesus is the Christ, obeying his commands, etc. You know, for example, many parents are concerned about their infants and their young children, you know, dying and going to hell because they haven't accepted Christ. And based on that, what we've seen in some religious groups, um, especially among uh, Protestants and Calvinists, and I think to some degree, you know, Catholics as well, uh, but for sure Protestants, many of them would say that such people are lost, having been born totally depraved, 
guilty of Adam and Eve's sin. Uh, strict Catholics, I think, would say something similar and quote-unquote baptize them. In other words, sprinkle some water on them to save them. However, the scriptures would teach something completely different, that children basically are safe until they reach an age and mental state where they're able to choose between good and evil, choose between right and wrong, or choose between God and Satan. That the concept of original sin, the concept of being guilty of Adam and Eve's sin, of being lost in the womb, when you're born as an infant, until someone can sprinkle some water on you. And, you know, those, those concepts just, you know, are not in the scriptures. I might also add, you know, when we talk about accountability, you know, this doesn't mean that people can make excuses, you know, for their sinful behavior uh, by saying, well, you know, I can't help myself. You know, God made me this way. I was born this way. You know, uh, my brain is wired differently, etc. No, your behavior is a result of a number of factors. And, you know, to some degree, perhaps genetics, upbringing, maybe even diet, you know, etc. We should always try to do our best to do what is right. So, you know, as one of our, you know, archived articles, under A for age of accountability, sort of summarizes, quote, the age of accountability is when one understands is capable of believing, repenting, confessing Jesus' deity, and being baptized. Belief requires certain intellectual and uh, abilities to, you know, judge. Uh, repentance, confession, baptism all entail abilities which small children do not possess. As we've said, as part of the, you know, steps of salvation or plan of salvation, all these steps are needed to include belief and repentance of sin and Brian, you know, as we said in the previous answer, to some degree counting the cost of what professing a belief in Jesus really involves, and principally that of a lifelong commitment to Christ. So, quick answer, specific age, well, roundabout answer, age of accountability, one possesses this amount of uh, ability and intellectual capacity and willingness and ability to commit, yes. There you go. How's that for a roundabout answer? Yeah, I like it. And, you know, one of the damning things of believing that children are born with original sin or in sin, can you imagine if they died at birth? If you really believed that, then you would have to say they would be lost because they were in sin and nobody in sin is going to heaven. And so I think sometimes, you know, once again, Calvinism, we had a series on that, you know, really goes back to the third century. And so a lot of religions have adopted this. Well, yeah, we need to baptize infants, as you mentioned, because they have original sin. But they don't yet think about the consequences of, well, once again, if an infant dies, then what you're saying is they're condemned to hell because they're full of sin. That wouldn't make any sense, right? So as you pointed out, they have to have the ability to discern between right and wrong, understand the concepts of sin. That's consistent with Scripture. And so anyhow, just another example where if you study the Bible, it becomes pretty clear. Right. And as I did, in addition to, you know, under the topics A for uh, age of accountability, uh, under B for baptism, uh, I think you'll find at least one article on infant baptism. Mention C for Calvinism. Um, under S for sin, there's some articles on original sin as well. Okay, Brian, next question. So this one comes from Sandra. She writes in, I've been told by many that Jesus could have sinned here on earth if he wanted to. I cannot see that, that it could be possible since he's God. Am I wrong? Yeah, it's a good question. And it is one of those where it's hard to imagine deity, Jesus, as we were saying, was God, came to the earth and is a manifestation of him, could have possibly sinned. But yet the scriptures say, yes, it, it was in fact possible for Jesus to sin as he had free will. So a couple passages, I think, make this very clear. First is if you go to Matthew chapter 4, Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And if you go down through verse 11, what you'll see is that, you know, Jesus was tempted in three different ways. So lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And he resisted all of those temptations and refuted everything that Satan was trying to tempt him with, with Scripture each time. So that's one set of Scriptures that teaches us that. The second... It would be over in Hebrews chapter 4, 
verses 14 and 15, where it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So one thing that Jesus demonstrated when he was here on this earth was that he was able to keep the old law perfectly. He did not sin, but yet he was still tempted in all points as we are. So we don't want to assume, well, he was deity. Of course he wouldn't have sinned. No, this says he had all those same temptations that we have as men, but yet he resisted them. And therefore he is that perfect example for us and also is why he was the perfect sacrifice for sin because he was, as the other uh, other passages say, an unblemished lamb and was therefore the perfect sacrifice. So, Jeff, that would be my answer. Any thoughts from you on that? The only thing I just might add is it, it may be hard for us to wrap our minds around the concept of, you know, a, a, an all-holy God, deity, Godhead, existed for all eternity, has insight into the future, etc., coming to this world. Now actually directly experiencing the things we experience now encapsulated within a human body that has all kinds of natural inclinations natural you know drives you know sex drive you know hunger etc now experiencing that personally and, and, and as you said coupled with free will could have sinned, yes. Could have chosen, yes. Been tempted just like we are, yes. In fact, it's, it's a little on the humorous side, but I'll mention it anyway. You know, Jesus being the son of a carpenter, you know, working with wood, stone, hammers, whatever. You know, I you see it happen with people today. You know, they smack their thumb and here comes the profanity. Well, who knows what kind of, you know, accidents, you know, Jesus might have gotten into or, or hurt himself and could have whatever said, we often say today, but, you know, restrained himself, free will, tempted by Satan to, you know, make life easy, just just whip up his own bread miraculously, poof, satisfies hunger. No, you know, resisted the temptation from, from Satan, even though, as you said, through through the flesh, tempted to do all different kinds of things that, that we're tempted to do as well, without sin. Yeah, I appreciate that point because, as you mentioned, yes, he had the same fleshly desires. And in fact, we see that going back to that section I mentioned in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted by the devil. Because it says in verse 2, you know, he had fasted 40 days and nights. Afterward, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said, if you're a son of God, command these stones to become bread. Well, Jesus had fasted 40 days. He was hungry. He had the power to change those stones into bread. But of course, Jesus wasn't going to do that. He said in verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So yes, definitely had those same desires. And it really is an example about how we should approach it when we have those same desires. Exactly. So Jeff, the next one comes to you from Fred. He asks, how did the genealogy before Noah get passed down after the flood? Yeah, I like that because everybody died, but Noah and his family. So what happened, you know, with that genealogical line with for Christ, I assume he's asking. Right, and, and I'm assuming the, you know, like from Adam to Noah, etc. Uh, and and re- I think the simple answer is that God communicated to the writer of Genesis, most likely Moses, what God wanted to communicate. Now, you know, wrap your mind around that for a little bit. Who witnessed creation prior to the creation of Adam? Well, there are no people. God, yes. Angels, yes. No people. Who witnessed the interaction between God and Satan in the opening chapter of the book of Job? Well, God, Satan, angels. Not men. Who witnessed the fountains of the great deep being broken up as part of the global flood? Genesis 7 11. Well, God, sure. Angels, maybe. People, no. Oh, there's a lot of things in the Bible that were not witnessed by humans, written down at that moment, and passed from generation to generation to generation. What we basically see in a in a quick answer is what's sometimes called inspiration. The Holy Spirit 
providing narrative to a writer, to a prophet, to, you know, someone to write down what happened, even though they weren't there. Like Moses, Genesis 1, <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Um, and, and we kind of see that uh, reference to some degree in John chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus speaking to his disciples, his apostles, of course, this is the night before he was betrayed. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you things to come. We have communication from God to man via inspiration. Uh, and generally speaking, I would categorize this under the uh, umbrella of what's sometimes called Christian evidences. You know, things that make it reasonable to believe God does exist. That the Bible is indeed what it claims to be, inspired word of God, from God. And of course, that Jesus is, is the Christ. And on my particular uh, aspect, uh, at our website, under the topics menu item, under C, or Christian evidences, uh, some material that does make it reasonable to believe that indeed God gave us revelation, you know, through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, to include things that we, humanity, you know, weren't around at the time, or didn't witness, or can't witness because it involves interactions and activities or attributes of the supernatural realm, you know, heaven, Hades, etc. There you go, Brian. Yeah, that's right. In fact, we see what you just mentioned, you know, the revelation in Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse one, where it talks about, you know, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So it goes through in those first, whatever, like 20 verses and gives us the physical genealogy. So we can see how that was revealed to God or by God, I should say, you know, through the Holy Spirit, of course, and uh, we have that today. So very good. Okay. So speaking of the Bible, <laughs> you get one uh, that uh, is related to that coming in from Daniel. And he asks, why was the New Testament written whenever the Old Testament already existed? Does this mean the Bible was changed uh, or updated? Uh, does Jesus or God approve of New Testament, and I think he might go on to say, and he might know, not know this, but you know, does he approve of the New Testament even though it was written after Jesus' death and ascension back to heaven? Yeah, and it's a fair question, and there certainly is a lot of confusion. We, we see it in the religious world today about the difference between the Old and New Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, you know, through study of the scriptures, one thing that we realize or, or come to learn is that it was always God's plan that there be a New Covenant or Testament to replace the Old Covenant or Old Testament in our Bibles. And so we see this, for instance, over in Jeremiah chapter 31, where God prophesied, uh, beginning in verse 31, I'll read it here. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So it was God's intention that the old covenant be replaced by the new covenant, which would be brought about by the death of Jesus on the cross. And we can learn that by looking at Hebrews chapter 8, where we're told there that Jesus was the mediator of this quote-unquote better covenant. In fact, if you go down to verse 6 in Hebrews 8, it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And then if you continue on in verses 8 through 12, you'll see here that the Holy Spirit quotes what was promised in Jeremiah 31 by, re, uh, re, uh, by putting those same verses in Hebrews chapter 8 that we just read. And he finishes in verse 13 by saying, And that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So that old covenant 
the law of Moses that was given to the Israelites did in fact vanish away when Jesus died on the cross. And in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, we're told about the power of the blood of Christ and how it cleanses us. And then in verse 15, it says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. So we might remember when we read through Jeremiah 31 through 34, Jesus, or God, I should say, the Lord said, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So that was one of the new or wonderful characteristics of the new covenant is that our sins could be forgiven, whereas under the old covenant, they were just covered and they were remembered year by year. But what we see under Christ is not only for us today, but even going back, his blood covered the sins of those before this new covenant. And so as it mentioned here, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So yes, God planned the new covenant, and Jesus approved of it by sacrificing himself on the cross so that we may obtain forgiveness of sins. So Jeff, I'll turn it over to you for any thoughts. Uh, the only thing I might add that I'm going to make an assumption that when this podcast comes out, we will have already published the previous series on the traditions of men uh, versus the word of God. Uh, in that particular podcast, we kind of highlighted this interesting aspect between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, in that podcast, which I would uh, encourage our listeners to go back and listen to, we drew a, a distinction, if you will, uh, as you've tried to do, Brian, that you know the Old Covenant, the Old uh, Law of Moses, etc., no longer applies. And in that previous podcast, we happen to make mention that there's a lot of religious groups out there that kind of want to still cling to the uh, Old Testament uh, and bring forward various doctrines and practices and terms into the New Testament that are not in the New Testament, like priesthood or altar or tabernacle or religious robes or incense or instrumental music or a separate you know, clergy from the laity or tithing, et cetera, or worshiping on the Sabbath, that we need to, you know, carefully draw a distinction. Those things certainly are in the Bible, but for a newcomer to the Bible, you need to recognize that not all of the Bible applies to us today. Certainly some things we can learn from the Old Testament and how God interacted with people and some general principles of righteousness and, and the good history that sets the stage for Christ's coming and the prophecies, etc. We do need to make that uh, distinction. Brian, anything else before uh, we go to the next question? Uh, nope, let's go ahead and move on to the last question. And Deng asks, was there ever a time when God overruled man's free will? Interesting question. It is. And it's one of those questions that I find has layers to it. And you can kind of, you know, there's like a surface layer and then there's kind of, you can, if you can dig in deeper and find more layers of nuance. I think there's, although at the broad level, two ways kind of of answering the question. In matters of salvation, I would say no. You know, God does not overrule man's free will in terms of becoming saved. God will respect man's free will, will respect, and when I say man, you know, humanity, uh, choosing between good and evil, choosing between right and wrong, choosing whether to serve God or not serve God. And we see that in, in a lot of scriptures uh, in, the, in the Bible, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, in fact, Brian, if you want to go back to Joshua chapter 24, uh, could you read verse 5? Uh, I'm sorry, verse 15 for our listeners. Yes, here it says, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the god of or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, likewise, Matthew chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. An invitation, if you will. Uh, Brian, how about Revelation chapter 3, verse 20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Right. So personal choice, free will, 
to become saved. And of course, Brian, this is in contrast to the teaching of Calvinism, which we've periodically addressed in a couple of different podcasts, claims that man cannot exercise free will, uh, that he has original sin or total inherited depravity or you know the complete inability to even believe that God has to miraculously pick, aka personal predestination, pick a person, work a miracle on them, even enable them to believe. Well, according to the scriptures we've seen and many others, that is not the case. That man does respect, or God does respect man's you know free will, free will choice. Okay, so that's one way of answering the question. God overruling man's free will. The other way, which is maybe a little bit more nuanced answer, is yes, occasionally God has made certain choices to use particular people for his own sovereign reason, own sovereign purposes. And let me kind of give you some examples that come to mind. You know, God selected Noah, you know, build the ark, and God chose to destroy the world via Noah's flood. God selected Abraham above everyone else for special attention, Genesis chapter 12. God selected Moses among all the Israelites for special mission, so to speak. You know, Ecclesi- uh, Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4. In, in fact, the interesting with Moses is Moses starts to kind of, I don't know if say quibble, argue with God. Basically, Moses doesn't want the job. <laughs> uh, I, and it kind of comes to a head in, in Exodus chapter 4, verse uh, 13. Uh, Moses said, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whoever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. So we see God using Noah, Abram, Moses. Um, in fact, we see, you know, talk about overriding free will. Uh, king of Babylon, God directly punishing the king of Babylon for his arrogance. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse uh, 28 through 37. In fact, uh, verse 32, uh, I think it was an angel, if I remember right, telling the king, They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. We also see, I don't know if I want to say overriding free will, but we do see Holy Spirit-inspired communication. Uh, Classic example, Acts 2. Peter and the other disciples don't know what to say, but they get up and they just start talking. In other tongues that they have no knowledge of. So, does God override free will in terms of picking certain people to have them do certain jobs or give them certain miraculously inspired things to say? Oh, yeah, kind of in that sense. Of course, even with Noah, even with Abraham, even with Moses, you know, they still had to agree. <laughs> they still had to obey, even though they were, quote unquote, chosen. Uh, although, as we see in the case of Moses, uh, took a little bit of extra persuasion, <laughs> you know, from from God to accept His uh, commission or accept His mission. So again, kind of a the main answer: No, God does not overrule man's free will with respect to salvation. Uh, from time to time, has God chosen certain people for certain missions, regardless of what they would have wanted to do? Well, yeah. You know, I'm thinking of Jonah. <laughs> Go to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? Runs in the opposite direction. So God kind of gets His attention. <laughs> eventually, gets him to. Go do what God needed him to do. How about that, Brian? Yeah, I like that point. And I, I think you made a really critical point here when you know you're talking about God made certain choices or chose certain men like Abraham to do things for him. But that didn't mean that Abraham didn't still have free will, as he pointed out. So for instance, in Genesis 12, your reference there you made to Abraham, you know, in verse one, the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And if you skip down to verse 4, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Now, some might say, well, there you go. God told him, and he didn't have a choice. He sort of robotically just did what God wanted. He didn't have free will. Well, that's not true. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham's actually commended for doing what God 
said in Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise. So Abraham had faith, but he still had free will. What did he do? He chose to obey what God asked him to do. So totally tells us it was his choice, and God wasn't forcing him to go to another country. Exactly. Well, Brian, I think that takes us to the uh, end of our questions for today. Hopefully our audience has, has benefited from other people's submitted questions. And like we've mentioned, uh, hopefully they can spark their interest. And as always, uh, there's some website resources that we can let them know about, can't we? Yeah. In fact, you gave some really good ones during the podcast. I'll add just a few others. You know, we were talking about that age of accountability. If you choose the letter A on our website, there is actually an article about age of accountability that you can read. And Jeff also referenced another one that goes into more detail. C for Christian living and covenants. If you want to read more about the Old and New Covenants. N for the nature of Jesus and the nature of man. And then S for salvation. So please take advantage of those resources. As Jeff mentioned early on in the podcast, if there's a question that you don't see answered on the website, feel free to click that Ask a Question button, submit the question, and within a few days, you'll be able to receive a scriptural response from our site. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at BibleQuestions.org.